It's Thursday, the 1st of July, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay claim to that very wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who is in the podcasting business. And rather than sit here and recite each and every podcast we do, probably best that you go to the Hoover website, which is hoover.org, and check them out yourself. Very easy to find them. Just go to hoover.org, click on the publications tab, go to where it says podcast, then you can uh, just describe, decide which one you want to sign up for. You can also sign up for a monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcast uh, to you each week and each month, excuse me, and I hope that this podcast makes the cut. Hoover podcast, just one part of ideas defining a free society. A very special guest today is my colleague, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is a former presidential national security advisor, and he is the Hoover Institution's Fouad Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. He also is a lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I wanted the general to join us on the podcast today for three reasons. Number one, he was born and raised in Philadelphia, where this democratic experiment that we call the United States was set into motion 245 years ago this weekend. Second, General McMaster has spent a majority of his adult life wearing the uniform of his country, risking his life so that others can enjoy the same freedom that we as Americans oftentimes take for granted. Third, if you're familiar with the Goodfellas broadcast that HR and his Hoover colleagues Neil Ferguson and John Cochran do, then you know he's an inveterate optimist. And if Christmas and Thanksgiving are about valuing friends and family, then in my opinion, the 4th of July is about appreciating all that is great about America. HR, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's a decent hour here in South Carolina where I am, but it's very early in California. So thank you for uh, rising and shining for us today. Hey, Bill, it's great to be able to be with you and to be able to celebrate Independence Day with you. So before we get into the 4th of July, I wanted to uh, maybe take a minute or two and reflect on the uh, life and times of Donald Rumsfeld, who passed away yesterday at the age of 88. Uh, I met him once at HR in 2004. Um, uh, he was interested in signing me up to work for him in the Pentagon, so I got to sit in his uh, office uh, deep, in the, deep in the heart of the Pentagon and uh, speak with him. Quite a character. Uh, your thoughts on the late Secretary Rumsfeld? Well, he provides a tremendous example of service, Bill, and I think what most people focus on is his last tenure as Secretary of Defense, when he was the oldest Secretary of Defense, but they forget that he was also the youngest Secretary of Defense, that he was also, I think, the, the youngest Chief of Staff of the White House, mm-hmm. and, and had, had served with distinction as a congressman as, and as a naval officer. He also had a successful career in the private sector. So I think it's an example to young men and women who are drawn to service, who want to, who want to give back to this great country of ours, Donald Rumsfeld's career is, is a great model, and, and we ought to remember him and remember his, his extraordinary service to our country. And I think he was famous for his memos, weren't they called Snowflakes HR? Uh, did, did he ever send it in your way? Oh, you know, I, I was on the receiving end indirectly of quite a few of those when I was advisor to the, to the commander of Central Command, General Abizade. And we went back and forth on a number of issues. You know, General Abizade, and and not that I matter, but that, and I, I really... Uh, didn't agree uh, with Secretary Rumsfeld in the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq. We felt that right. there was a very dangerous insurgency growing. And I think Secretary Rumsfeld in large measure because of the, the legacy of Vietnam, you know, was was thinking just, hey, let's just get out of here. We just don't wanna do these long protracted conflicts. And, and I guess sadly, you know, paradoxically, that short-term approach to that long-term problem in Iraq, and then also in Afghanistan, actually lengthened those wars, and I think made them more costly. So nobody's infallible, certainly. Uh, but this was a this was a point of contention. And, and I was oftentimes an indirect pen pal with Secretary Roosevelt, <laughs> explaining why from our perspective, it was an insurgency. And then when we get snowflakes back explaining his perspective on why he thought it was not an insurgency. 
You know, nature, another reminder that the September will be 20 years since 9-11. Time is right. going fast. It is, you know, and of course, you know, we, we are, it's a, it's a terrible situation there now as we withdraw, I think, after really defeating ourselves, Bill. But, uh, of course, we have young men and women there fighting uh, in the name of their fellow citizens who had not yet been born on 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. So HR, I actually grew up about three hours south of you. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from the nation's capital. So um, that was a great place to be raised because in part HR, because I was very uh, imbued in the roots of our country. A lot of childhood field trips to monuments, Civil War battlefields, and had a very good understanding of you know how the United States came to be. I'm curious, since you were raised in Philly, your, um, your first brush with independence, when was the first time you went to Independence Hall? You know, it was one of my earliest memories, Bill. I mean, I was always at Independence Mall, it seemed like. My, my mom uh, was a tremendous woman and a, an amazing educator. She taught in the school district of Philadelphia for 34 years. She taught in, in some of the most underserved communities and difficult neighborhoods there and was an inspiration to a lot of, uh, a lot of young boys and, and girls as a really dynamic, charismatic teacher. And she had a, a, a deep interest in uh, love for history, and especially the history of our nation. So when when I was a child, we took full advantage of being in Philadelphia. We went to Independence Mall. We went to to Valley Forge National Park. We our summer vacations were were road trips to historic locations. Right, we went to Gettysburg. We went to Yorktown, and uh, and we always and I, I picked up on that. And of course, it, it sparked my love for history, and I studied history later. And like all through my life, is still a student of history, and um, and and of course, I, I've now have inflicted that on my on our daughters. I remember when we lived in at Fort Eustis, Virginia. Uh, we would make it a Thanksgiving uh, tradition and a Christmas tradition uh, to serve in 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 a in a, uh, in a church that that uh, served those who had problems, you know, and and uh, and didn't have access to to regular meals and so forth. So we would we would do that as a form of service on those holidays. And then on one Christmas, I said, "Well, hey, let's go to. It's a beautiful day. Let's go to Yorktown National Park." And so, so we did a we did a, a essentially what we call in the military a staff ride of a battlefield on Christmas Day. And and our, our daughters said, "Well, this is pretty predictable." I was driving one of our other daughters between her houses, helping her move in a big moving van. And I saw that I saw you'll this is by near where you grew up, Bill. Saw a sign for Manassas Battlefield and mm-hmm. pulled the moving van off into the uh, into the parking lot, and we took a we took a short battlefield tour of Manassas. So it's just always been I've always was imbued with a with a deep desire to learn history and especially learn the history of our great nation. Right, and then you attended Valley Forge Military Academy in college, which is uh, what about five miles from the winter encampment. It is. It is. And as you can imagine, at, at a military academy, traditions and and military history in particular are an area of emphasis. And and I had great history teachers, especially my my uh, my my history teacher for the history of the United States uh, was a guy named Roger Sicoli, a Marine veteran from Vietnam, who was also my football coach. And um, and so I, I just I, I it was always my favorite subject, maybe. Algebra and cal- calculus, not as much, you know, but but uh, I loved history. That's interesting. So um, 30, almost 35 years in active duty, I believe. 30, 34 years, 34 and years. And your father also served about 35, right? He did. 
so my my father my father uh, got his parents to sign a document that allowed him to enlist during the Korean War at the age of seventeen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he deployed with the second or went deployed to the second infantry division, and was a Browning automatic rifle gunner. Uh, and some of the toughest kind of stalemated fighting of the of the war as the negotiations were going on. He went there as a private first class. He left as a staff sergeant uh, and as a squad leader. And then when he arrived back in the United States, was promoted to sergeant first class and was a first sergeant of a training company. Mm-hmm. He uh, he then decided to, to stay in the reserves, get out of the active force, but stay in the reserves. And he worked for the city of Philadelphia. And and uh, in, in the reserves, he was a first sergeant of an infantry company in, Ger- in Germantown uh the germantown neighborhood of, of philadelphia and uh and so I, I was exposed to that you know as a, as as a uh, young boy and you know i didn't really live the military life of, of a military child you know moving around and everything but i i saw my my dad going to work in in fatigues and he would sometimes be, you know take you could take family members over over to the the armory and meet other soldiers one time i remember he he took me with him in a jeep it was freezing cold up to fort indian town gap for a training weekend and I got to experience, experience that with him. So, I mean, that both my mom's love for history, her imparting that to me and my father's service, I think is what drew me to the army. How do you celebrate the 4th of July when you're posted overseas? I, I was looking at a last year, for example, at Bagram, um, uh, there's an organization called Pizzas for Patriots. That's uh, pizzas for the number four poor patriots. Uh, they flew in 150 pies. For the soldiers based there but when you're when you're stationed overseas how do you celebrate the fourth well well the, the, the as a commander you know what you try to do is get around to see every soldier and celebrate the holidays with them uh the, you know any holiday thanksgiving is a big one obviously for the military as, as well as are of course you know christmas and and easter and hanukkah so you try to you know you try you try to 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 visit each soldier uh, it allows a, a commander to be able to kind of check on how each of your soldiers are doing but also to to celebrate really the gift that we have of living in this country. And, you know, people always, you know, thank, you know, our servicemen and women for their service, which is, is wonderful. Uh, but I, I think sometimes people don't understand what, what uh, you know, what the tremendous benefits and rewards of service are, you know, being part of a team in which the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you. And the great privilege of, of fighting in the name of, of our country, a, a country that is, is committed to, to individual rights and, and, and the rule of law, committed to freedom of speech and freedom of expression, to religious freedom and, and tolerance. And, and you know, we, we serve in places where, you know, you don't see that, Bill, and you recognize how fortunate we are and, and what a gift it is to be a citizen of our country and the double gift that it is to be a citizen of our country and be able to, to fight and serve uh, in, in, in our fellow citizens' name. Let's talk a bit about how you explain this to other people and other cultures, HR. I think one thing that people don't understand about, about the job you did, a general doesn't just command troops. A general is also involved in diplomacy. A general has to explain what the United States is up to, what, what we're doing in a country, that we're not, we're not invaders, we're not hostile, that we're actually there for the good of their nation. How do you explain the roots of the United States of America if you're in Afghanistan or Iraq? These are cultures, HR, that just, besides obviously maybe not just knowing the American experience, don't understand a republic, they don't understand democracy, they maybe just, they can't appreciate the, you know, how we came to be. Well, these are people typically who have suffered over many decades, right? Both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. In Afghanistan, you know, from the so from, from a revolution, the the, uh, the the Soviet occupation in the '80s, 
the very destructive civil war from 92 to 96, the, the mm -hmm. utter brutality of, of Taliban rule from 96 to 2001. And then, and then this, this insurgency that's continued, uh, you know, fueled by the Taliban jihadist terrorist organizations and the, and the, and Pakistan right? and the Pakistani army. And so the, these are people who have known nothing but war across multiple generations in Iraq, of course, it goes back to the, you know, the Ba'ath Party and the brutality of Saddam, the very destructive Iran-Iraq war from 80 to 88, during which 600,000 people lost their lives. Uh, and then, and then, uh, and then the insurgency in Iraq after our invasion in 2003. So, uh, and then the terrorist, uh, the problem set there associated with Al-Qaeda in Iraq, one of the most brutal terrorist organizations ever in, in history. So the, what they, what they've known is the absence of the great gifts of, of America, you know, our, our our ability to live under rule of law, you know, in those communities where there are where they are they are enmeshed in in violence, those sub communities fall back in on themselves and they seek protection from tribes, and and these societies tend to fragment as communities become pitted against themselves in competitions for power and resources and survival, and that absence, you know, of of rule of law. That that absence of of individual rights, uh, the the actually you know the, the, just the basic recognition that, and, and the brilliance of our founders that that sovereignty lies with the people, right? And and that government serves the people, not the other way around. So so the the people in in these in these countries that experience this brutality, they look to America with great hope and and with aspiration, and. And, uh, and and when you know when, when there are those who tarnish the image of, of, of America, uh, they, they lament that because America is the great promise uh, for 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 the people for the people that who I interacted with most in both Afghanistan and in Iraq. And and it's funny, funny Bill. Sometimes uh, uh, some of my Afghan counterparts, for example, when we were implementing these you know the, these uh, strategies that were that were fundamentally unsound and. And we would swing from an, an increased effort uh, in Afghanistan, but at the same time announcing our withdrawal and and these inconsistent strategies over time. I mean, some of our Afghan counterparts would say, "Would you please just be American? Why are you guys? Why are you not being American? Because they associated America with determination and success, the uh, the ability to overcome obstacles, uh, our optimistic nature, you know, our our ability uh, to work effectively with others." Because our motives really are altruistic, and 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 uh, and and our, our our objectives coincide with the interests of of the of the vast majority uh, of the of the people in places like Afghanistan and in Iraq. You know, Charles Cook, who uh, writes for the National Review, HR, where you write as well, uh, he put this very well the other day. And here's what he said. He said, quote, unlike most nations, the United States comes with instructions. In the Declaration of Independence, we have a statement of intent. In the Constitution, we have a rule book. And in the Federalist Papers, we have a glossary. That's absolutely right. And, and you know, I, I think that what's what's been striking to me is that my Afghan friends and Iraqi friends Many of them have read those documents much more closely than the vast majority of our citizens, Bill. So this gets this gets to the you know the the beginning of our discussion where you talked about you know, growing up in Arlington, Virginia, and near our capital, and my experience in Philadelphia, and becoming familiar with those documents and the places that really the, where those documents came to life, right, and, and animated the you know the you know the the early years of our of our republic. 
Uh, you know, I, I think that civics education is vitally important, vitally important. And, and, uh, and, and really, I, I think many of our friends abroad read those documents more closely than our own citizens do. Let's talk about civics for a second. You and I talk about this a lot on the Goodfellas broadcast. Uh, back when I worked for Pete Wilson, uh, writing speeches with MHR, I also was in charge of uh, a department, Department of Media Affairs. And we would have interns each summer, very bright uh, men and women coming from California colleges, Stanford, Berkeley, USC, UCLA. And uh, being the jerk that I am, I would give them an American history quiz because I was just very curious about something that I did not want to find out the answer to, which I found out to confirm my worst suspicions. And it was this, they didn't really understand American history. What was fascinating was that um, I, would, I would give them I'd give them 20th century questions. They'd pretty much get those. They might get some Civil War questions, but boy, their knowledge of history kind of ended around 1850 HR. And when you got into the 1770s and you started asking questions about the Revolution and the Constitution and the Tea Act and the Stamp Act and just, you know, what caused the rebellion to begin, they don't understand what happened. They just, they have not been taught this. Right. Well, I mean, there there is a canon that, that uh, that I, I think Americans should read, right? I mean, it's important to re read synthetic, synthetic histories and textbooks in 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 college and I mean in in in, um, in, uh, in high school. But I think it's important to really spark an interest in in nonfiction and especially the history of our country. I mean, I think you know it, it's a it's a big tome, but Gordon Wood's creation of the American Republic is right. is a great place to start, or his book on the radicalism of the of the American Revolution. And then you know there there are you know on on the Civil War if you just want to skip ahead I mean James McPherson McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom I mean I I mean there there are certain books I think that all Americans should should take on uh, a certain canon you know that would give us I think the you know the, the necessary ingredients for understanding better the evolution of of our, of our republic and of course uh, there are bright spots there right like the like the winning of our our independence. But there are also disappointments, right? And the fact that that it took us nearly a hundred years to 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 eliminate the scourge of slavery, right? But I think we ought to we ought to take pride, Bill, in, in the in the fact that that we emancipated four million of our fellow Americans in our during our most destructive war in history. Again, then our, our, we can be disappointed, right, in the failure of Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and separate but equal. But I think what we see in our history. It is, it is an arc, an arc in, in which we are able to improve our, our society. We are able to strengthen our republic as our founders envisioned. I mean, none of, none of our founders thought you know, it would be, it was going to be perfect from the beginning, right? They knew that our republic would require, you know, constant nurturing in, in their words. And, and I think what's different, what's different about our form of government and, and other democratic nations enjoy this as well, is we do have we, we do have the ability for self-improvement short of revolution because right. sovereignty does lie with the people. And I think what we need to do is reinstill confidence, right? Confidence in ourselves, right? And, and today, Bill, I think we, we, we are lacking in self-respect, which is a necessary ingredient for self-improvement. And one of the reasons is, I think we have, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of our history. And I was just on vacation and one of my, one of my nephews was reading Harold Zinn's People's History of, of, of the United States. And, and, you know, I mean, of America, when, when you, when you, when you, if that's all they're reading, right, what they're reading is an interpretation of our history mm -hmm. uh, that, that is, is important, 
but certainly not comprehensive and certainly does not emphasize the great promise of, of America. Yeah, I think also historians, HR, and also universities have to decide how history is going to be taught. For example, uh, your your beloved Chapel Hill, where you got your masters, um, it's uh, you know they've been they've been convulsed over uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and the 1619 controversy. Uh, they took away uh, a tenured job for her. I think the news out today is that they're going to actually give her the tenured position after all. But this does raise questions as to how prominent universities, especially, are going to present American history to kids. Right. And, and, and there is a very strong these days presentist agenda, right, as we would just call it as historians, right? And, and that, is, that is interpreting the past through the lens of not only the present, but, but a contemporary political agenda. Much of that political agenda is, is a radical agenda, I would say, Bill. It's a, it, 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 it has elements of, of you know, identity politics or elements of critical race theory, which I know is sometimes not a useful term to use because it's so broad, but... But in particular, this idea, you know, this is the this Kendi idea, right? That that to, to you know that that past prejudice and, and discrimination requires present prejudice and, and discriminate discrimination and and so forth. So, or, or the people ought to be valued in our country, um, you know, mainly based on their identity category, right? Rather than the content of their character, as Martin Luther King said, or their work ethic, or, or their you know, or their dedication and, and, and selflessness. I mean, the, the, these elements of their character. So I, I think this is this is a real problem, Bill, and and it's a problem especially when when this kind of presentist interpretation of history becomes an orthodoxy, and an orthodoxy that dominates departments of history and, and other uh, other departments in the humanities, and then it's it's an orthodoxy that is foisted on our young citizens. Now. I have faith in our, in our young people. I think that Americans tend to reject an orthodoxy if it's forced on them. And I think we're beginning to see that, that, you know, that young people are, are, are demanding more, right? And, 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 uh, and this, this so-called, you know, this woke orthodoxy uh, is going to be rejected, but it's, it's doing damage already, Bill. It's doing damage to kind of the soul of our country. Uh, and it's, what it's doing is it's, it, it is, it is, it is reducing our confidence in our common identity. It's wearing down our social fabric. It's pitting communities against each other in a way that doesn't really replicate exactly, but, but, it, but I think it's analogous to, you know, the kind of conflicts that I've seen abroad, you know, and it's destructive and, and it has to be arrested and we can't wait for politicians to do it. I'll tell you, Bill, I mean, I, I just think so many of our politicians are too eager to engage in this debate in a way that benefits them from a partisan perspective on the far left and the far right. right. And so what they're doing is they're, they're contributing to, rather than arresting uh, the centripetal forces that are spinning us apart from each other. Yeah, that's very well put. Um, I have one suggestion that's not intellectual, but it might be practical. Kids are visual these days. If you haven't noticed with the little kids you're around, I have uh, four little grand nephews who are around me here in South Carolina HR, and they're at all times trying to look at TVs and they're on screens. And boy, if you want to get their attention for five minutes, dangle an iPhone or an iPad in front of them and, and you own them. Maybe we need to kind of show more visual medium to uh, to kids these days to explain the country. Um, I would, for example, explain World War II to them by showing them Band of Brothers and uh, the Pacific, the, the two wonderful productions by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. I'd also then HR maybe show them the uh, John Adams series on HBO, which really does kind of beautifully explain his life, but also the revolution. It does. It does. And and 
and take them to places, Bill, like the like the, the new museum of the American Revolution in in, in the great city of Philadelphia. Uh, of course, the Constitution Center there has a lot of visual displays. I think, you know, if you're looking for a place for a summer vacation or maybe based on the humidity in my hometown of Philadelphia, maybe a uh, maybe a fall or spring spring vacation. But I, I really think taking children to the places is important as well. And then there, there are organizations that are developing, you know, these short videos. I really think what Hoover's doing with the policy ed videos is really important. I'd like to see them get a bounce and make it into curricula and 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 for for more young people to have access to it. But also the Prager series, you know, is really is really good and compelling because it combines these kind of short uh, narrative explanations, right, of of uh, of aspects of of civics and our history, um, historical questions presents both arguments, right. Now the, the presenters off they come down on one side, but they do what what those who sort of you know those who push this this orthodoxy that we're seeing that is captured, I think, really uh, many of the humanities departments of many universities, especially in the wake of the Vietnam War, or since the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, I think instead instead of just showing that one side, like we we hear so often, I think on college campuses, they they present both sides, you know, and the, and they help, I think, young people think and and assess what they're hearing. I think so often what what we what we see are young people who buy into this orthodoxy without really thinking critically, you know, about it, the nature of its arguments, and what the implications are. You know, speaking of Philly HR, a few of us at Hoover have been worried about you the past couple of weeks. The Sixers exit was uh, particularly brutal. The Phillies are kind of loping along under 500. The Eagles are, who knows where the Eagles are. It's a tough time to be a Philly sports fan. <laughs> but hey, Philadelphia is a great, it's a great comeback city, right? I mean, so, so I, I think uh, when we've been through lean years in the past with all, with all of those teams, we've been through some great years with all those teams. So I think the Sixers, you know, they, they let up, you could see that they let up, you know, and, and that's important for us to, I think, to understand as part of this discussion. We can't ever become complacent, right? We have to always improve. We have to recognize that we're in a competitive environment. You know, the Hawks didn't didn't deserve to win. They did deserve to win. The, the Sixers didn't deserve to win it. And what makes it worse is my son-in-law's from Atlanta. It was just terrible. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's bad enough with the Braves in, in, the, in the National League East, but, uh, but with the Sixers' loss. And then, of course, you know, I'm a huge – I'm a huge, um, you know, a huge Flyers fan. I'll, I'll tell you, if if anybody is, is wants to wants to rekindle their pride in in America, watch the the when the Broad Street Bullies played the the, the Soviet Red Army hockey team. Mm -hmm. I mean that that'll re, that, that that'll rekindle your your great faith in the spirit of of the America. So Soviets left the ice, right? They quit. They quit the game. Oh yeah, they they were, they were getting hit so hard. These were legal hits. But they, you know, they, they had won, I think, the previous three or four games. You know, they had played right. all the old classic teams in the in the NHL. Remember, the you know, the Flyers were an expansion team that won the the the, the, uh, the Stanley Cup you know, uh, just only after a few years of being an expansion team. But they did it by reshaping the game by becoming much more physical, and uh, and and they just drove the, the the Red Army team off the ice. They didn't come. They were, said they weren't going to come out for the third period. Then it was explained to them, hey, if you don't come out for the third period, you don't get paid for any of this, you know, any of this tour. And so they came out and played the third period thinking that maybe the Flyers would let up on it. But then they just doubled down, you know, on, uh, you know, on the tough checking and 
And it was just, it was a beautiful thing to behold. There's a, I think there's a, a it must be an HBO documentary on the Broad Street Bullies overall, which is great to watch. It is, and it's called Broad Street Bullies, and it gets in the whole culture of the, of the of the Flyers and how they turned around was really kind of a, you know, just a dormant franchise with a, shall we say, unique style of hockey. Which well, so you know, and, and, you know, and sports analogies only go so far in war, Bill, but I'll tell you, I mean, that's what we need, is, again, is a winning spirit. I mean, the idea that you can fight in war without a clear vision to of what it means to win and then do everything you can to win, you know, at, at obviously an acceptable cost, you know, I, I think is crazy. When I, when I, when I, I think if, if the great captains of history were to come back and look at the way that we fought the wars in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, they would think we were crazy or incompetent or, or both, right? Think about the, some of the phrases we've used you know, like responsible end. What does that mean? I mean, the only responsible end of war is winning the damn war, right? Defeating your enemies. And that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean rolling into Berlin to end second, you know, the, the second world war. Sometimes it's not as clean as that, as clear as that, but it's, it's getting to a sustainable political outcome consistent with our interests. And sadly, Bill, I think that's what we had in Afghanistan. I think we'd already won the war. We just hadn't told ourselves we'd, we'd won it. And we talked ourselves into into defeat there. Uh, and you know, when, when was it ever okay, you know, to announce to your enemies years in advance, you know, how many troops you're going to have, you know, what your what your plan for withdrawal is, you know, what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. I mean, I, I think that that we have become to a certain extent incompetent, but it's also combined with a lack of determination to win. There are no second place trophies in war. And, and, and I think Americans have understood that across multiple generations. Hopefully, we've relearned that lesson uh, in, our, in our most recent wars after 9-11. Yeah. I'd like to read you, uh, H.R., something that Thomas Jefferson wrote to uh, John Adams, speaking of Adams, in September 1821. They, of course, famously became pen pals when both left their presidencies. And here's what Jefferson wrote, quote, in short, the flames kindled on the 4th of July, 1776, have spread over too much of the globe to be extinguished by the feeble engines of despotism. Now, if you were able to sit down with Mr. Jefferson, HR, his rotunda is sitting behind me in my house here, my sister having gone to the University of Virginia, what would you explain to Jefferson about the world today, especially uh, his phrase, the feeble engines of despotism? Right. Well, I would, I would explain to him that maybe he was a bit too optimistic. I think he was fundamentally right. So there's, an, there's, a great, there's another great book on, you know, there's by Gordon Wood, I mentioned him earlier. Uh, it's on Jefferson and Adams and their relationship. I don't think he's as kind to Adams as he should have been. Adams was, was more of a humanist than he portrays him uh, as. And, uh, but, you know, the, Jefferson was very optimistic about the triumph of, of human nature and especially liberty uh, over, over authoritarianism. Um, and, and, uh, and, and of course he saw great promise in the French revolution as well, only to be disappointed in the, in the, in the initial outcome of the French revolution. Mm -hmm. So I, I would just say that to, to, to Jefferson that he was fundamentally right. And I agree with him. Um, but, but, uh, he, he, uh, he might be surprised to see the degree to which authoritarianism can, can reassert itself. Um, and the examples, of course, prominent examples of that, uh, are, are Russia, uh, and, and after the failures of the, ref, the reform attempts in the 1990s and Putin taking power in 2000. And, and this, you know, what's, what appears to be, at least for now, a successful authoritarian model in the Chinese Communist Party, but sadly, a Chinese Communist Party that is largely enabled by us, 
right? And 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 our uh, and, and our economic and, and financial policies uh, that have not acknowledged the, the importance of the geostrategic competition with the Chinese Communist Party. He would he also might be surprised at how enduring some of the despotic regimes are, uh, such as the the only <laughs> the the only uh, hereditary communist dictatorship in the world in North Korea. Uh, and uh, and and the theocratic uh, dictatorship in Iran, so so uh, I think there's there's work to be done, obviously by the peoples of those countries primarily, uh, but there's also work to be done by us. I think to set the example of of what democratic, free and, and open you know, governance and and a free market economic system means, uh, and and how that benefits citizens, our citizens and others. Uh, but I guess that would be my my main observation is that he might that Jefferson might have been a bit too optimistic. Let's talk about some of those avenues, HR. There's, of course, foreign aid to countries. Um, uh, there's something the Biden administration is doing right now, which is I think is very smart, which is uh, taking doses of uh, COVID vaccines and sending them around the world, especially because our vaccines work better than Chinese. Um, there is what else we can do. We can get involved in infrastructure in other nations. Uh, we could also step up, let's say, Voice of America and ways to kind of pass along information on our side of the story. What would you suggest in terms of just promoting the United States and promoting this concept of freedom? I would say, first of all, for too, for too long, we delivered aid without paying attention to the politics. And by the politics, what I mean is the degree to which there is political will to implement reforms, reforms consistent with you know, with with representative government, with rule of law, uh, and political will uh, that would result in in a general alignment uh, of policies with, with our priorities abroad, and and uh, and an alignment away right from from our competitors, especially I would say you know China, Russia, Iran, and 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 and, and the, among the top three of our of our adversaries and rivals, and and by by the politics, I mean generation of political will. Uh, to enact reform. So, for example, we would deliver all sorts of technical assistance over many years to institutions that would be associated with democratic governance, but without recognizing that those institutions were essentially captured, you know, either by 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 criminalized patronage networks uh, or by authoritarians who were using those institutions uh, in, in a way that was the opposite of what we would envision in in uh, in, in a representative form of government or in a democracy. So I think what we have to do is find out, first of all, determine where there is will. And whenever we've done that, we've been successful, Bill. And sometimes it takes a long time, right? So, you know, Korea is an example we talked about on, on Goodfellows in, 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 our, in our last uh, episode there. And, and uh, you know, it took from 1953 at the end of at the armistice uh, all the way until the 70s, until reforms began to take shape. But it was this, this, this work over time that made the difference. There's a great book on this called Nation Building in South Korea that tells the story of, you know, good government programs, bad government programs, you know, programs that were, that were working in opposition to one another. But, but the sustained effort over time bore, bore fruit. I think Plan Columbia is another example. You know, in the late 90s, Columbia looked like it was headed for disaster, right? And a disaster that would affect us in a significant way associated with the the uh, the strength of, of the narcotics uh, or the organizations there the FARC in particular, and 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 a, and a, and a sustainable long term effort there partner with strong local leadership paid off. Now Colombia is seeing some renewed violence. It's still a work in progress, obviously, 
but you know, but that was a sustained effort. If you look at, at Panama in the wake of the invasion and our relationship with Panama, that's positive. Dominican Republic in 65. So, I mean, there are all sorts of examples in this hemisphere uh, and, and abroad of successful programs. Uh, George W. Bush's program of PEPFAR, uh, which was, was aimed at eradicating AIDS, but also has had tremendous public health benefits across the world was begun was successful because people had the will right governments had the political will to take on this problem and we partnered with them in an extremely effective way so anyway bill i guess the short answer is put politics at the center of the effort and only support those who are willing to support themselves because those will be the only efforts that are successful i will say though that it is important for us to recognize that support to those who want to help themselves it's not just an act in altruism right? It's also the, the, the best way to compete with China's authoritarian mercantilist model, which it is now aggressively exporting uh, across the world. So you have an anniversary coming up in a, a couple of years at the point. It's going to be 40 years since you graduated. I don't know how often you go back to West Point HR, but if you had a chance to sit down with second lieutenants, just young men and women who just have uh, gotten their commission and are about to embark on maybe 30, 35 years in the service like you, what would you tell them about what they're about to venture into? Yeah. Well, I would tell them to be excited about what they're about to do, that they're about to, to, to join, the, I mean, the profession that, that, that uh, will, will give them you know, a lot of challenges, uh, challenges to overcome. They're going to endure hardships, but they will reap less tangible rewards of service. As I mentioned, you know, being part of a team in which the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you. You know, being being part of a team uh, where everyone in that team expects, you know, expects the army or the, you know, to be tough, right? They're disappointed when it's not. They want to be challenged. And then being able to to really operate on missions that allow you to, you know, to to demonstrate your combat prowess as, as an organization against the enemies of all civilized people. These are jihadist terrorists who are fighting today, for example. Uh, or to demonstrate that prowess in, in a way that prevents conflict by deterring potential enemies. But also there, there are rewards associated with, with our warriors serving both as, as warriors and humanitarians. I mean, Bill, I'll, I'll tell you, in, in the areas in which I've served in Afghanistan and Iraq, and Iraq in particular, uh, in command of the, of the 3rd uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment, you know, we, we, we were able to see areas that were controlled by Al-Qaeda, right? And, and the world got to witness how bad that was. They got to see it again in it with Al-Qaeda 2.0 or ISIS taking over uh, portions of Iraq and, and Syria. And, and we, we were able to defeat the, this brutal enemy, lift the pall of fear off a community and see life just rush back into the city. You know, we, we had our soldiers were mobbed by throngs of, of children. I mean, this, I mean, Americans, because they didn't, hear much about this part of the war you know there there were iraqis naming their children after a cavalry troop commanders they were naming their children jesse you know for just for jesse sellers um at schools were reopened and so our, our our soldiers took great pride in not only defeating a brutal enemy right but but in making a tremendous contribution to to, to humanity you know and and also i would say that what they'll recognize is there, there are cultural differences across the world you know, but but we are bound together uh, much more by commonalities. You know, all of us want a better future for our children, right? And and uh, and, and so I think that, you know, I think that uh, they should they should be excited. 
you know, of course, as, as young officers in our army, I think you're given more responsibility at a younger age, maybe than any other profession. I would also tell them, hey, um, recognize that you're going to be continuously learning from your sergeants and others. But I think what, what leaders have to do most of all is, is, is accept the mantle of leadership, right? Recognize that it is you know, for lieutenants, that it, it is that his or her responsibility to make their part of the army the best it can be. Uh, and, and, uh, and to build an organization you know, that, that is bound together by mutual trust and respect and common purpose, where, where excellence becomes self-sustaining, you know, and, and there are high standards of, of discipline. Uh, and, and of course, the organization is well-trained and capable. So I would, I would tell them to be excited. In fact, I'm going back to West Point for September 11th weekend. Um, and we'll have the opportunity to interact with a, a large number of cadets there. I think that'll be very special. Uh, so finally, HR, your thoughts on America at 245 and maybe uh, comparing America at 245 to where America was at 200. At 200. Okay. So, you know, I, I think that we're, we're in a, we're, you know, we're in a tough spot these days, Bill. You know, we, uh, you know, we, we've had this quadruple, you know, this quadruple trauma, right, of a pandemic, a recession associated with a pandemic, the social and uh, divisions laid bare by George Floyd's murder, you know, the you know, then and and the and the violence in the aftermath of that, and then and then of course this this vitriolic partisanship that we've seen uh, with you know the assault on the Capitol, but then also the tendency of politicians in both political parties to compromise principles to score partisan political points. We see this going on, I think, with the debate in Congress now. You know, on this uh, on what kind of a what kind of a uh, of a January sixth commission there will be, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And and so what we need is we need to get over it, right? We we need to you know, as, as any leader of an organization knows who's been in combat and has experienced combat trauma, you need a period of grieving, but also you need a return to the mission, right? You need to, to, to recognize that the best way to get over this trauma is, is to work together uh, in, in, in a noble endeavor, right? And to, you know, and to, uh, and to help build a, a better future uh, or, or to accomplish your mission and to be able to take pride in the, in the accomplishment of that mission. Uh, you know, in our army, we try to honor our fallen soldiers with our deeds, right? As we, as we continue the mission and try to deliver an outcome that's worthy of the sacrifice that they made. And so that's the kind of the spirit I think we need today. You know, and, and I'm thinking of 45 years ago, you know, the, you know, really in the midst of the Cold War, you know, 200, I remember the bicentennial you know, uh, celebrations in, in, in Philadelphia, you know, I think that that also was a period, right, where there was a great deal of, of pessimism and concern, right? Remember, in, you know, in, in, in 1976, right, we had, and we talked about this on our last Goodfellas a little bit as well, the 70s show, you know, but we, uh, you know, we, we, we just experienced a lost war in Vietnam, you know, we had, we were in a recession, stagflation, you know, we we're just a few years away from the, from the Iranian hostage crisis, you know, there was, as President Carter said, a malaise, you know, and, and, and we didn't say that word in the speech, but but the, 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 what became those malaise speech. So so I, I think, you know, I, I think that things got better with 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 uh, with Reagan's leadership. Our country bounced back, I think. I, I think he helped restore pride in our nation. He had a dramatic impact on our armed forces, Bill. I mean, uh, the generation of officers who had seen our army before Vietnam uh, before policies during Vietnam really did their best to destroy our army, uh, helped put together a renaissance, not in our army and, and across the armed forces. 
And that renaissance in our armed forces was important because it sent a really strong signal to the, to the Soviets at the time. Remember, there was a lot of conventional wisdom back then. You know, hey, the Soviet Union was in the ascendancy. We were right. in decline. Right. It's, mu it's much the same narrative as you hear these days in connection with China, right? There was an economic narrative that had Japan as number one and the U.S. system as, as failing. So we demonstrated the capacity for self-improvement as we have in the past. And as long as we don't constrain our individualism, if we don't constrain our entrepreneurial spirit, if we do the things we need to with government investment in critical areas, critical technologies that are important to us remaining, maintaining our competitive advantages, uh, but don't go too far with kind of status policies that, that, that ring out uh, that, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit and, and the, you know, the, our, I think what is our competitive advantage in our free market economic system. I don't know if you caught it uh, yesterday, but uh, Putin said something interesting, HR. This was uh, in regard to the British warship that uh, the Russians fired upon, uh, not with live ammo, but they fired at it anyway, just to show that they could. And he said, we could have sunk that ship if we wanted to. And then he added, um, but we didn't, but we could. And then he said, um, we could beat them in a war, meaning not just the UK, but the US. So there's still sort of that Cold War mentality in terms of Soviet greatness, if you will, just disguised under a Russia, under Vladimir Putin. Well, this is what we, we tend to underappreciate is the degree to which emotions and aspirations drive and constrain our adversaries. And though, you know, I, I think that Putin is driven mainly by a sense of honor lost, a, a sense of honor lost after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, a, a corrupt system that he spent had spent his life to that point trying to trying to preserve. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 so his response to that is to is this drive to restore Russia to national greatness. Well, thanks to him and his corrupt regime uh, that are choking the life out, out of the Russian economy, stagnating the Russian economy, not just the sanctions that his behavior has has resulted in, but but also you know the 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 very the, you know the very criminalized nature of, of that regime and the oligarchs who surround him and prop him up. Um, you know he doesn't have a lot of material to work with. And so, 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 you know, what, what he has to be is, is disrupt. And, and you see that with kind of, kind of these uh, capabilities that he is, these anti-accessory denial capabilities that he's deploying around the Black Sea, but also in Syria, in, 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 uh, in Eastern Libya, in, in the Baltics, in the Arctic. And, uh, and also with his very destabilizing nuclear policy and these, these, uh, you know, the, these kind of, uh, you know, very dis disruptive uh, nuclear weapons he's developing. So Putin is very dangerous, but Putin can be stood up to. And, you know, NATO is much stronger uh, than Putin. If you take, if you take the, the United States out of NATO mm -hmm. and compare defense spending, uh, NATO defense spending and capabilities are much greater than Russia's. And, right. uh, and, but Putin knows that, but, but he's trying to gain an advantage wherever he can. Okay, final question, HR. Uh, today's the first. Um, how are you spending the fourth? I'm, my fourth is really kind of in flux right now when you're in South Carolina, the low country, every day is a chance of rain. So maybe a beach day, maybe uh, be inside watching baseball. I don't know. I have one crazy thought. I'd really like to have some hot dogs, I think. I've been trying to eat well lately, so maybe some hot dogs and pair that with an insanely expensive bottle of wine. I think you got a bottle of wine, uh, same bottle of wine that you got, I think, too, my friend. Um, but um, that's my fourth, but I'm going to put this in front of you, tee this up for you to dunk at home because you have a fourth that's going to top mine. <laughs> well, we have some family. Uh, we're, we're visiting family here in, uh, in, in Orange County, California. And so we're going to have uh, at least you know two of our three daughters here, and and a son-in-law, and uh, 
and our our daughter's uh, our, our daughter's uh, boyfriend who's serving uh, in the in the Coast Guard, and uh, and we're gonna have just a, a barbecue here, uh, but then also uh, there's a neighborhood block party and fireworks, huh? and I'll have the, the the great honor of joining the American Legion here uh, in Newport Beach for the Fourth of July celebration, and uh, and we'll take part in and in uh, in an old glory boat parade. Um, and uh, be able to make some remarks about uh, about the, the 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 great privilege that we have living in, in this republic, and 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 a recognition uh, and to recognize, I think, the great gifts that we have in America, and and how how happy we ought to be to be emerging not only from our latest kind of traumas, but to recognize that America has a long history of overcoming traumas and strengthening our republic and and building a better future for generations to come. That'll be the message, Bill. You know, you're spending a lot of time on the water, HR. You were doing a stand-up paddling, and now you're going to be in a uh, flotilla. Is there, are you secretly a Navy man at heart? I don't know. I guess Quit. I'm evolving that way. It's, it's a cause for concern, I think, Bill. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but I, I really, you know, I, I really do. Uh, I do do love being in California. I know we we on our program we often talk about you know the the disaster of California politics and economic policies and so forth. But it is it's a great place to it's a great place to live. Well, that's why you are the in-house optimist, HR. Uh, hey, I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you and your family have a, a great 4th of July and uh, look forward to seeing you on campus at some time this fall. Hey, Bill, happy Independence Day and thanks for everything you do. I just want to take a moment to thank you for your leadership and, and you know, in, in the podcast that we do with you. But what you do overall to, to really be part of the solution, right, to deliver a message about the great promise of our country. And I think if we're talking about the you know, how to improve civics education. I think listening to your podcast is, is a great way to do it. So now that expensive bottle of wine I have to now send to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill. Happy Independence Day. Thank you, HR. And thanks for taking time on this uh, early morning in California. <clears throat> You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, a good soldier that he is, is on Twitter. We'll have to have a conversation about that at some point. I don't understand why, but he's He's, he's bold enough to do it. His Twitter handle is at LTGHR McMaster. Let me spell that out for you. At LTGHR McMaster. McMaster spelled as you might expect, M-C-M-A-S-T-E-R. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast, which is www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. which delivers the best work of General McMaster and his colleagues your inbox weekdays. HR McMaster also does wonderful video conversations on the behalf of the Hoover Institutions called Battlegrounds, International Perspectives on Crucial Challenges to Security and Prosperity. I believe this month he has two in the works. One is with David McNaughton, who's a former Canadian ambassador to the U.S., and later this month, the one that I really want to watch, former uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. That should be a fascinating conversation. Battlegrounds, by the way, is also the title of his excellent book that came out last uh, year, the full title, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, available in hard copy, paperback, and Kindle on Amazon. You can get it anywhere you want. It's a great read. Uh, for the Hoover Institution, uh, this is Bill Whalen. Uh, on behalf of General Master, my Hoover colleagues, by all means, have a safe and joyous 4th of July. And if you have a chance, take a moment to reflect on the majesty that is U.S. of A. 245 years and still going strong. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit 
hoover.org.